Hey. Hi. We uh, we're doing something different this week. I was about to say you've flummoxed me now. Ha ha ha. Um, we like to do things out of order lately. Yeah. Um, and this week we have a, a very special episode with author C.J. Hauser, whose book Family of Origin came out last Tuesday, July sixteenth. Um, so it is one of Annie's favorite books of the year. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is the only contemporary novel that I have read this year, <laughs> which makes it automatically my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even if it had not been that, um, it would still be one of my favorite books of the year. I think this is a wonderful, wonder, wonderful, wonderful book um, that I want all of you to have your hands on. I went back in preparation for the interview and like I got my arc and I was like looking at the parts that I had underlined or whatever. And I, you know, you read, I read so many things. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, okay, trying to get like a refresher. I remember how this book made me feel. I remember right. the characters. But anyway, so I went back and every page that I had like torn, you know, and made marks, I was just struck by, I, I literally sat at my desk and said out loud, I was like, yeah, this is one of my favorite books of the year. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. I, and there are so many themes in it. And even talking to her, I felt like I was kind of all over the place. Yeah. I just no, I was wanted too. to like pick her brain. Yeah. Like, tell me how you did this and why you did it and, right. and what it means. And is it as personal to you as it was to me? Because right. it no. feels very personal to me. We were both fanning over this thing. Yeah. Um, or fanning and fawning. Fawning. Fawning and I was, fangirling. I was trying to do like fangirling and fanboying without gendering it so yeah. I just said fanning, fanning. but fine. really like Dakota fanning it we're Dakota fanning it yeah um <laughs> you're welcome I prefer L <laughs> I don't know anything about the fannings that's fine um you don't need but to. no we both really love this book and it is so complex and beautiful and tragic and interesting and about these beautiful broken people messy messy um, messy messy people um that I think we all can see ourselves in at least a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of the best books of the year. I'm so happy to be selling it. Um, no true spoilers, but shelf subscribers should maybe look out for it. Yeah. Um, if you are a shelf subscriber of some stripe, some of you will be getting it. Can't tell you who. <laughs> <laughs> it could be either of the us. The mystery, the mystery. Um, but anyway, uh, this is our interview with CJ Hauser. Um, I hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, CJ. How are you? Hello. Greetings from upstate New York. Oh, uh, it's probably so much nicer there than it is here. I, I would imagine. It is, I will say, it is glorious. This is this is our time to shine up here right now. There are tiny birds in my garden trying to eat my tomatoes. Oh, I have birds um, in a hanging vine outside of my apartment. <laughs> Your birds seem angry. No, I don't know that they're angry. They're just babies. They're disgruntled. And they're fledging. Yeah, they're disgruntled. Yeah, they might be disgruntled, but like it was really interesting to sit on my porch and watch these baby birds like while I was reading Family of Origin. Oh, how perfect! Um, and I was like, ah, oh, birds. Yes, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I understand biology. I understand. You're now an expert. I love that you had a, a weird bird person experience <laughs> while reading it because I feel like I've become a weird bird person by writing it. Mm. I, I can I can understand that. There are so many weird bird facts um, oh, yes. that just exist in the world um, that I that I wish I didn't know sometimes. 
yeah, no, the less one knows, the better. But um, I hope to, I hope to make people learn some things about birds in the most uh, bizarre way possible <laughs> in the book. Yeah, you made us pay attention. I think. Uh huh. Now I'm paying attention to duck biology. Yeah, absolutely. Now when Who I walk... knows what's going on with ducks? Yeah, nobody. you don't know. <laughs> Literally nobody. <laughs> I told Chris, Chris asked me, he was like, what do you want to talk to CJ about? And I was like, literally one of my questions is baseball, Mars exploration, evolutionary biology, and incest. How? <laughs> <laughs> it's so, you did it so gracefully and such a random assortment of things. But I think what I love about it is that's what life is. Right. It's just this random assortment of things <laughs> that we're supposed to somehow navigate. And you did it. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I have um, diverse and strange interests. And mm-hmm. as these characters started developing, I think that, um, I don't know. I think baseball, I mean, I'm a baseball nut, so that's personal. Also, Annie, I heard that you are a Montgomery Biscuits fan. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed, I am. The Montgomery I Biscuits, they throw see. biscuits at you. What more could you possibly want? That is fabulous. Um, I live in the land of the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. And so, Rumble Ponies. Yes. And so I'm also a fan of the local affiliates. Um, I have to be a, a Syracuse Mets fan because that's how that works. But uh-huh. um, I see the uh, the merch when I go to Cooperstown for all the minor league teams. And I think of you when I see the hats with sentient biscuits on <laughs> thank you um when we were there we were there two weeks ago and they were playing god like some, the jacksonville team which i think is the shrimp something anyway so the, yes. the chant was literally sop em up no <laughs> no and it was delightful delightful oh, oh. it's so good it's so good i don't know i'm a baseball fan and so i think Baseball sort of worked into the story in a lot of ways, but I think that I've had this idea about, like, the Giants as a team for a really long Mm -hmm. time, Um, and I think so much of the book has to do with the idea of, like, the previous generation being being this kind of, they're Giants, they're they're these epic figures in our lives, and, like, we, the millennials, or in my case, elder millennials (laughs) among us, sort of feel like, how could we ever, I don't know, live the sort of lives that our grandparents did, or sort of live up to the expectations of the boomers and so to sort of affiliate um nolan's parents keiko and um ian with the giants made a lot of sense to me yeah and i thought i thought that was a really potent symbol um and that you you come back to in the last few pages of like the the giant casting a shadow um like the the baseball player just casting the shadow of a giant um and i i thought that really worked um, and like that a lot. And there's, there's precedent for that in like old English poetry. And so like, you are, you are not alone. Wait, that's amazing. What, where does this happen um, in old English poetry? So there's a, there's a poem called The Ruin. Um, and it is essentially about Anglo-Saxons finding a bunch of Roman ruins and wondering like, what giants could have made these beautiful structures? Like what supernatural creatures could have done this? This is the work of their hands. And like, they know that it's just the Romans, like, they know who the Romans are, um, but they call them giants, they treat them like giants, because it's the thing that happened in the past, um, that is obviously so much better than they were. Um, oh my in, god, I love that, minds. that really talks to me. Yeah, right? And so I was, I was immediately struck by, by that when I was reading about the giants. Yes. I think that was one of the takeaways for me as I was reading, was you really, before we hit record, Chris and I were talking about 
millennials, mm-hmm. <laughs> of which we are a part. Yeah, um, we are all millennials here Kind in of this spaced out pretty evenly, yeah. too. Um, but so as somebody who's kind of an aging millennial, I was, <laughs> I was reading this news story about um, this millennial who had gotten in the news for not really a great reason. And so one of the things that I loved about your book was you treat the generations with equal respect and interest. So the giants that you're portraying, they aren't perfect. Ian's not perfect. Um, And even at the end, is it Ingrid? Is that her name? Yeah. Ingrid is not perfect. Um, And you show them as being people and Ingrid's ultimate decision to just, she's just doing the work. Like that is her kind of decision that she has made is I'm just going to keep doing this even though sometimes it doesn't make sense. Um, And this idea of, the previous generations, like the greatest generation, literally being called the greatest generation. Uh-huh. And that they named themselves, yeah, right? And, and fighting the Nazis. <laughs> and we don't have that. And you talk about having certainty versus uncertainty. And I had never thought about millennials in that way. And so you really treated these different age groups so beautifully. Um, and I don't know, I really appreciated that because you made me have a little bit more grace for my own generation, mm-hmm. which sometimes I get frustrated with. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, I don't know. I, I feel like by reading it, I kind of got a bigger picture, maybe. Yeah, and I guess... That, yeah. yeah, that was so important to me, and that was so much of what sort of, I don't know, freaked me out and drove me through writing this book. And so, I don't know, to hear that you took that away is so great. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of generational agenda going on. So, like, what I wanted to ask about that is, like, how did you kind of arrive at at these characters specifically? Because, like, they are flawed, um, they are interesting, they are some deeply messed up people, and, like, in a lot of ways, that's what <laughs> that's what the book is about, but right? But I still really liked them. Of course, yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah, I still really liked and them. And so, like, how did, how did these characters kind of come to be for you? I guess specifically Elsa and Nolan, but any of the other ones, I think, are also very interesting, and I have more structural questions later. Yeah, I think, I'll start with the reversalists because they're easier. I think that, um, I don't know, I was feeling pretty doom and gloom about a lot of things when I started, well actually when I started writing a book that did not become a book, um, I started writing this horrible dystopian novel about robots and Shakespeare. Yeah, Um, I I remember that. (laughs) That was a a time, Um, but the whole reason I started writing like post-apocalyptic dystopia was because I was like the world is terrible and Ferguson Missouri is happening and Mm. a lot of other things are happening and I just felt like really grim and hopeless and I guess I started to write sort of like here's how we've messed up the book and then eventually I realized that wasn't very interesting the Mm. way I was doing it at least I love I love a post-apocalyptic dystopia but mine was sort of like rubbing the reader's face in like how we'd failed um (laughs) I don't know, doing anything interesting with it. So the reversalists happened because I was like, well, what would be more interesting and what would actually be sort of, I don't know, harder to look at and think about with myself and other people is like, what makes a person sort of give up on the world in that way and Mm -hmm. feel inclined to be so doom and gloom. And so they're each sort of their own (laughs) possible version of what would make a person give up on the world and right. try to hide from it and try to feel like they were off the hook for fixing it. And so each of them, um, I don't know, they're none of them me and they're all me. Yeah. <laughs> and each of them is sort of a different way I could imagine someone despairing. Yeah. No, and I absolutely um, see that. And and the care with which you you wrought each of their backstories, I, I also really appreciate it. I think I teared up 
which I don't always always or often do, but I teared up at Gwen's story. I think yeah. it was Gwen. Uh. Um, because oh, some of it felt so very familiar and timely for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what would make me, I think I found in myself mm-hmm. the story that would make me go into <laughs> to right. a, a cult-like atmosphere <laughs> to, right, depart, yeah. <laughs> to depart from the world. <laughs> so, yes. I, yeah. I really, I, God, I love Gwen Manx. I mean, it's weird <laughs> to love your characters, and especially one like Gwen, but I don't know, there was something about writing her, um, th- there used to be this thing that the Rumpus did called Letters in the Mail, and I don't think they do it anymore, but um, you just got letters from authors handwritten <laughs> in the mail that they photocopied and sent to everyone on the list, and I got this letter, it was a Steve Almond letter, and God, mm. I love Steve Almond. Yeah, he's great. And it, yeah, and it was all about writing about the things that freak you out, like deeply frighten you mm. the most and that you like wouldn't really want to talk about in public. And it's mm. like, but that's what you have to talk about. And then there was like a picture of a moose that his son had drawn in the margins. <laughs> and that really, really stuck with me. And I think in writing Gwen, it was like, what is the thing that you most would never want to say out loud? Uh-huh. And, and I just sort of made this woman in her sad swim shoes wanting a baby and not having one. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, it, it really, and I, yeah, you totally can see that and feel that because those are things I would never want to talk about with anybody but a therapist. Uh, yeah. um, but but I, I saw in Gwen things that felt familiar. Mm-hmm. They felt familiar. And I found I, that in, in Elsa and Nolan <laughs> in, yes. in deeply troubling ways. Oh, yes. <laughs> Meant to be troubling. And I think Nolan... Um, I don't know, Nolan's deep sense of sort of like being an imposter yeah. and inadequacy, I think is sort of, he's kind of a millennial mascot in that yeah, way. Poor for Nolan. sure. And I think um, that was, he was a character who really let me think about what it meant to f- to feel that way, to feel like nothing mm-hmm. we could ever do would be as worthy um, as anything the people who came before us did. Right. No, and I, I felt that from him for sure. Why the sibling relationship, I guess? Because I, I love story. I mean, that's a joke on this podcast that I love dysfunctional families and complicated, nuanced family relationships. Um, siblings are fascinating to me. I only have one, but I like I am so interested in that sibling relationship, especially as it ages. And I wondered, why did you kind of, I don't know, how did Nolan and Elsa's relationship come to be? Do you know what the... the- Perhaps less exciting answer, which I will give first, is that when the idea for this book came to me, I was listening, I was on a 24-hour drive from Tallahassee up to New York, and I was listening to the audiobook of Tender is the Night by Fitzgerald, (laughs) and there's something about that mood that was sort of where this book, I knew that was the mood I wanted to conjure in this Mm. book, and the way I feel the mood of that book is they're sort of in this hotel by the sea and so sort of like the normal rules of life do not apply Mm, there um and i also actually one similarity with the abandoned shakespeare robot novel (laughs) is that howard bloom said that like whenever people go to the forest in shakespeare they're like on vacation and the rules don't apply Uh and so that was very much a part of it too and there was something weird there's like dick diver is having this sexual relationship with this teenager essentially and his wife is in the other room and everything is sort of like charged and fraught and wrong but in a way that makes you want to keep reading Uh um and so that was something i don't know that was the mood i wanted to sort of conjure um 
And then once I started thinking about the way the book was about nature and nurture and biology and like what is a family and who is your family and what right. can you pick and not, uh, that the logic equation that Elsa comes up with yeah. in the book of like either we can be family, you can have me as a monster and I'm your family, or you can sort of absolve me of the things I've done wrong, but you have to give me up as a child. And that sort of logic problem yeah. came to me pretty early in the process and that's kind of how their relationship came to be because I think it sort of forces the reader, I, I think, I hope to sort of uncomfortably ask themselves like, is this wrong? If so, how and why? And like, which are the rules for what a family is that you mm -hmm. have made in your own head in order to make that decision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when I, when I did finally get to that chapter, when Elsa kind of, when we get it kind of from Elsa's perspective, um, where, where we're presented with this logic problem, um, as, as you put it, I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Like that was so deeply moving because I, we had already seen it from, from Nolan's perspective, right? Where it is just this thing that kind of happened to him. Um, and that is like traumatic and something he didn't have a ton of choice in. No. Um, and then to, to see it from Elsa's perspective that this was calculated, this was something she was going to do, um, just like stung so bad. Um, and I, I, oof, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to, t how to talk about it, except that it, it hurt me a lot in a good way. Yeah, because she really, and that's his complaint that he sort of come out right. with at the, when they come back together again on the island, he's like, you didn't think about me at all. Right. Like, I didn't matter in this. And right. yet this is like the defining thing that happened to me in my life. And how is that fair? Right. Ugh. One of the other themes we, you know, we kind of talked about the generational thing, but one of the themes that struck me is the like adulthood versus childhood. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is something that like, as you get older, you kind of don't have this anymore, but there's this passage where you write about one of the reversalists calling um, Elsa and Nolan children, children yeah. and how that yeah. makes them feel and how, you know, on the one hand it makes them feel you know, slightly diminished or whatever, but on the other hand, it rem it reminds them whose they are, um, and it reminds them that they're they're Ian's, and it makes them feel young again, mm -hmm. and they kind of like that, mm -hmm. and they kind of miss that yeah. identity. And again, I don't know, you know, like I don't know if my parents still think that way, mm -hmm. but I kind of think they do. Like I think they do still like being called Charles and Linda's kids, like mm -hmm. even though Charles <laughs> and Linda aren't here anymore. Like, right. and there is something to me, even the older I get, the more comforting I find about somebody who still knows me as Chris and Susie's. Mm -hmm. Like, I there yeah. is something really comforting about that, and I that was such a poignant passage to me, and it was it was just a paragraph, but mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that that speaks to my constant as a thirty three year old, like a constant struggle of, but I want to be an independent, mm -hmm. you know, totally on my own adult. But also, I really like still being known as Chris and Susie's. Mm. Um, and, th and those two parts of my personality often fight against one another. And I wondered how you came to that. Like, is that something personal to you? Or, I don't know. I just felt deeply seen by that. I think that there's a sense of, like, to be part of a family is to sort of belong. And, and when you say, like, Chris and Susie's, it's a possessive. It's like a kind of you're mine in a nice way where mm -hmm. it's like you belong to this, but it's also a, you're mine, yeah. <laughs> which can be sort of like, Oh God. Um, <laughs> and I, think, um, I don't know. I'm really interested in that idea 
of family. Something I was thinking about a lot when I wrote this book is sort of the difference between conditional versus unconditional love, Mm -hmm. especially for Elsa, who feels like the love of her family is very conditional and right. so she decides to push the boundaries of that mm. um but something i actually so i teach a class on the dysfunctional family novel i've done it three times now oh, i need to take um, this class <laughs> I, need to, I need to audit from afar <laughs> you are so welcome and i would love suggestions because i know that you read such books as well but my students it's always such an interesting class because we are like you know, 95% scholars of literature, but I allow like 5% room in the classroom for them to be like, oh my God, my family. (laughs) (laughs) That happens. And I think that the thing that they always wind up circling around it, these are, you know, really, really smart 18 year old adults, essentially, Mm -hmm. who are like, there are rules and values and uh, expectations implicit in membership to a family. Mm -hmm. And that if you break them, whether or not you still get to be a part of that family or not is kind of up for grabs. And I think that's the thing that's, I don't know, sort of wonderful and terrifying yeah. Um, yeah. about those discussions. And I really wanted to think about that. Like, what does it mean to be Ian and Keiko's kid? What does it mean to be Ian and Ingrid's kid? And what are the rules you have to follow right. in order to have that privilege of family, essentially? Mm-hmm. And that's such an uncomfortable truth about how families work in a way that, like, we don't want to talk about. Nobody wants to believe that familial love is conditional, but in a lot of cases, it really is. Mm. Oh, Um, yeah. um, And and that's what Elsa, that's her whole conflict, right? Like, that she's really trying to explore that um, in in a destructive way. Yeah, and I think that if Elsa could just, like, trust and relax into the fact that Ian says, you're still my child, you're still my child. Right. Um, none of this would have happened, but she just couldn't bring herself to trust in it. Right. She, for some reason, needed the biology yeah. to feel like she couldn't do something so wrong that they would leave her behind. Right. Um, even though I don't think that was a real assumption that she should have made, but that's sort of her, I don't know, scary origin story. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> so, in the book... It, we have mostly talked about the familial mm-hmm. relationships, but you also have woven in, besides baseball... All you, the science. Yeah, all the science. And I'm curious yes. where that came from. Is that also a fascination of yours that you were able to do a deep dive on and then include in the book, or did that just happen as you wrote these people? Yes. I have said this before, and I feel like I should stop saying it because it reflects poorly on me, but I feel like most writers are failed blanks, and like mm. they're like failed historians or failed artists, and I'm like a failed scientist. I wanted to be a scientist, <laughs> but I love making shit up and the not true too much to be a good one, but I read a lot of science and pop science, and I watch documentaries, and David Attenborough is yeah. like spiritually my father, and like I just... <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a way of thinking about and seeing the world that's like fundamental to who I am as a person. So there's that to start with. Um, but I also really wanted to think about the way that when people become super pessimistic or doom and gloom or whatever, what what does that look like? And so with the reversalists, it's in part the way they tell the stories of their lives, like it's a, it's a narrative thing that they do where they tell these stories that are sort of overly resolved. Like this is the story of why I gave up on the world. And so that sort of pat storytelling form is something I wanted Mm -hmm. to think about. And then I wanted to think about what it would look like if 
they did bad science essentially like what <laughs> what would a bad science that was trying i think i call it in the book a, a science to match their sentiments like yeah. we want to prove that we are right about these emotional subjective yeah. things which is of course not what science does right. but like to push a bunch of people to that point i thought would be really interesting Right, and I, th- I think the the character that comes to mind there is Gates, um, yeah. who is just really trying to like get this thing published, push this like agenda, um, and to ignore the data that might contradict her, and to even like not just ignore it but get rid of it, um, yeah. because she just needs for this stuff to be true um, for her own psychic well being. Um, yes, and you've got a passage I think about about two thirds through where I think it's Elsa who's just thinking about how scientists are just people too and scientists just want something to be true um, and and sometimes ignore the facts for the sake of their sentiment. Um, and I, I think that was a, a, a good undercurrent to the story because it also then reinforces the familial thing, right? Where it's like you're, you're believing something is true whether or not the data actually supports it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that in a way, at least for me, like science is sort of the last port in the storm of being like, there are answers out there and there are some <laughs> things that we can know and trust. Right. Um, and so it starts, like, I guess going back to these questions about family, like mm-hmm. that was another thing that was important. Like you're raised in a family and you're told certain truths about the world and part of growing up is sort of separating the ones that like you believe versus yeah. your family told you and you then have to discard because they aren't actually true or they're not true <laughs> right. for you. Um, and I think that Nolan and Elsa are really looking for, I think they take comfort in being called the children because it absolves them of having to be in charge. They're very afraid of having to be in control of things and like on the hook for their own problems and the problems of the larger world. And Mm so family is one level of that, but then scientists, one would hope, would would be like, well, at least here, here's someone who has the answers. Mm -hmm. Here's someone who can solve this for us. Um, but if you look at the history of science, I mean, there are good scientists, yes, but like the nature of being a scientist is figuring out when you're wrong and like what you don't know. And that's terrifying because then like all the way up the chain, like who is the person who is certain, like who has the answers? And if we don't have a person, (laughs) what does that mean? Um, one of the things that I wound up kind of taking away from the book and it, I felt like I saw it in both the familial characters and then also the reversalists and the scientists was very reminiscent to me of the famous quote that Theodore Roosevelt has about being in the arena and ultimately these characters having to decide do they want to be in the arena and you know Elsa and Nolan kind of having to to grapple with okay, do I, like, I think we you phrase it a certain way about Nolan, like, does he still want to play the game? Mm-hmm. Um, does yeah. He, does he want to still try? Um, and we get some of that with at the end with Ingrid, and we see um, Elsa kind of grappling with that, but I think we also see it in the scientists. Like, are we going to, even though there is a risk that as a scientist we will be wrong, are we willing to be wrong? Are we willing to get in the arena anyway. And that's, I don't know, as somebody who sometimes struggles with, um, like, I hate being wrong, um, or, I, <laughs> or I hate sometimes the not knowing. Mm-hmm. I think one of the takeaways from this book for me was, but it's better to be in the arena, and it's better to sometimes be wrong, and it's better to sometimes be uncertain, right? Like, isn't that what life is about? Yeah. Like, sometimes you don't know. Right. I don't know. Absolutely, and I think... 
I don't know. That was a real, a real struggle of writing this book was that I felt like it was important for me to put myself on the hook for thinking about like, how do we live in this world happily or just ethically, mm-hmm. um, given all of these unknowns and given how many problems there are and given right. how small and inconsequential we feel. And as I sort of neared the midway point, I was like, well, I don't have answers to these questions. <laughs> <laughs> how am I supposed to write this book? Um, but I had to approximate what Nolan and Elsa could come out with sort of feeling is like at least an answer for them or each person finds their own answer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and did that passage about Ingrid just sort of like, keeping her head down and doing the good work she knew how to Mm -hmm. do, which was sort of tending to the dying and like looking them honestly in the face. That was all she could sort of imagine to do. And I guess that's, that's sort of the best I could come out with in the end because it's a big question. Right. Mm -hmm. No, because the kind of, I don't know if it's an opposite, but it's a, a, another option there is the anxiety that I, I, again, I think it's Elsa that has that, like, maybe it's just children all the way up. Like, maybe we're yeah. all just children. And I was like, I see your turtles all the way down reference, Howard. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe it's children all the way up. But also that was, like, one of the most the most Salinger beats in the story for me. Um, <laughs> like, I just saw, like, distinct shades of Holden Caulfield. They're like, oh, no, it's all just kids. <laughs> um, God, I love Salinger. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would say, I don't know. I think about Salinger a lot because... I think that kind of existential despair he then manages to make so personal for mm-hmm. all of his characters. Right. And I think that that sort of micro macro, my own sadness, the sadness of the world, how to live with both, how to do something about both. Um, I don't know. That's the part of Salinger that's always spoken to me. Seymour is my favorite mm-hmm. glass, glass sibling, of course. Um, and he writes a lot about meditating. And then of course there's the story, I think it's called Teddy about, um, the little boy who is spiritually precocious and he's so spiritually precocious that he chucks himself into an empty pool and, and dies mm. at the end of the story. And it's, um, I don't know that negotiating what to do with those questions and those sadnesses is important to me. And I guess I am grateful to Salinger for sort of paving the way there. Mm. Yeah. Which then that reminds me of, of my favorite character in the entire book, James Maxwell Peacock. <laughs> oh my god wait can i tell you something Please. And this is horrible and i hope i don't know maybe i do hope he likes books and he's listening but uh that is a child that part is from life nothing else in this book is from life <laughs> i promise but um i worked at a daycare and there was this kid whose name is only slightly different from the name of the book um <laughs> And he used to do that thing where he would climb to the top of things and shout his own name. <laughs> I have just never forgotten him. I loved that child. So when I quit my job at the daycare, I, I was like 17, and I, I came back to visit. He was very mad at me because he felt like I'd abandoned him. Oh. It just broke my heart. He said, CJ, you left me. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> Um, but I just, that kid has always stuck with me and I, I I think of him as sort of, he's probably in college by now, timeline wise, but I think of him as sort of in my mental landscape, a representative of the next generation. Oh, absolutely. And so so that's how he sort of wormed his way in. When, when Elsa imagines him on Mars, not planting a flag, like that's honestly, and I know this is weird. That's the part that made me tear up. (laughs) 
I cry at a lot of things. I didn't I didn't cry in this book. I felt very emotionally fraught until I got to the part about James Maxwell Peacock on Mars. And then I was like, yeah, you do it, buddy. <laughs> Makes me so happy. Makes me so happy. <laughs> Should we end with the questions we always end with? Oh yeah, I forgot we do those. Yeah, I haven't done that. That's because I do forever. that. Yeah, that's because I do that. So yeah. we have, I think, four questions that we always end interviews with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is, what's a classic book you've never read but wish you had? <laughs> well, this is very relevant because this year on my birthday. I made a big show of buying myself War and Peace and mm. saying, this is the year I'm going to read War and Peace. And I've read 100 pages, which is not very much <laughs> in the scale of War and Peace. Not in the scale of War and Peace, but objectively it is. <laughs> but objectively it's 100 pages. But I, I don't know. I love Anna Karenina. I love Tolstoy's style. I know I will love War and Peace, but it's so heavy. It's yeah. just, uh, it's an arm workout, even just lifting. Yeah, it's a big <laughs> boy. Is. It's a good reading on the couch book, not taking it places with yeah. you book. Yeah. But I, my birthday's in October. I technically started it in October. I will finish it by October. <laughs> so I wish, I wish I had read all of War and Peace. Yeah. Well, you'll get there. I You're believe almost you. there. <laughs> um, okay, we are a podcast. We like listening to podcasts. Do you listen to podcasts? And if so, what are your favorites? Oh my god, I listen to so many podcasts um, all of the time. Um, I love listening to you guys because it just feels so cozy and like I'm in a room with friends who are smart and talking about books that makes my day. Um, I listen to a lot of... What do I? What shall I call them? I, listen, I love Reply All. Yep. It's one yeah. of my favorites. It's my favorite. Fans. It's like human interest stories, but about what is new and weird about being a human because yes. of the internet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's one I really, really love. I mainline a lot of news every morning, which is probably not great, but Michael Barbaro going on the daily is one of my great pleasures <laughs> in life. Look, I listened to the daily like every day of my year until I think mid-June. And then I was like, I have to start my morning with something else. I'll come back to you, Michael. Like you have my heart, but like I need a minute. Like it was starting it was just start like starting my day that way had become it just every day was something else and I was like I yeah and I you know I want to be an informed citizen of the world but Mm -hmm. I had to take a breather there for a Mm -hmm. minute oh yeah definitely (laughs) and when I need to take a breather I listen to two dub queens because that is just comedy comedy gold and it's in in a different way it makes you feel like you're in the room with two smart people who are just shooting the shit and somehow you're lucky enough to be invited yeah 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 yeah. podcast feel (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, you no longer live in the South. Do we count Tallahassee as the oh, South? Yeah. yeah. Um, but what do you miss most, I guess, about life in the South? I miss a lot. I, I wasn't prepared to fall in love with the South. I was actually quite salty about moving South yeah. when it originally happened. But I miss it so much. Um, honestly, it's the music of speech. It is the music mm. of people's speech, which is just, frankly better <laughs> than the music of speech in upstate New York, which is quite wah, 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 wah. Um, <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I feel like there's more natural storytelling. There's more like patience in everyday life for like talking to people about your life. Like, I feel like I knew a lot about the people who worked at my local Publix grocery store. <laughs> and yeah. I'm very sad that I no longer know what is up with them. Um, <laughs> 
don't know, just the patience for storytelling and the music of, of people's accents there in the, like, North Florida, South Georgia line area. Yeah. Um, it's something I miss a lot, and there are just, like, natural places that mm, it breaks my right. heart every day that I'm not, like, swimming in the Cherokee sink um, with the turtles, and actually the geological sinkhole in the middle of I knew island it. is definitely just the Cherokee sink. I, abs- <laughs> I absolutely knew that. <laughs> I am so glad you recognized it. I think there are some people out there who will, and that makes me happy. <laughs> okay, last one. Um, tell us what you are reading right now. Well, I'm just, I have just skipped over the divide, so I have to tell you two things. Um, I just finished, um, and he's a friend, but it's so good that I feel like this isn't biased, uh, Jake Wolf's The History of Living Forever. Yes, okay, I've been wanting to pick that up. It is so good, and it's so good in the way, like, do you know when you start, you're looking for something to read, and you hope it's going to be good, but you pick it up, and sometimes you're like, I don't know. I picked this up. And immediately, just like the power and authority of the narration and the charm of the narration on the first page, mm. I was like, oh my god, yes, I can relax. I don't need to be <laughs> vigilant and wonder about this book. I'm just going to read it and it's going to take me wonderful places. Oh, and it's, I don't know, it's like heartbreaking and about like loss and I don't know, the ephemerality of life and what mm. it means to fight against it or not. And there's all this great interstitial stuff about the history of people who have tried to create elixirs of life which Mm. is amazing um yeah that really sounds up my alley oh my god it's so good and And then i just finished it and now i'm reading uh brass by jeanette alu so good already she's like i'm from connecticut she's from connecticut we're from very different connecticut's although i'd like to pretend otherwise (laughs) she's writing about like the factories in waterbury um and the working class of Waterbury and Albanian immigrants in Waterbury. And it's so salty and I'm living for it. (laughs) That's wonderful. Sounds like you are in like that sweet spot where like your reading life is really good. I feel like I'm in a little bit of a slump right now. So I'm kind of (laughs) jealous. It is summer as a teacher. You've got to cram in all the things like it takes a while for me to turn off the part of my brain. That's wondering like, how would I teach this? Should I teach this? And I'm, it makes me a better reader to shut that down just for a minute. Oh, you need to teach me how to do that. Um, <laughs> because I have no idea how to turn that off. <laughs> it's so hard. It is. Um, what is your most immediate um, press thing? Like, you have your book launch party tonight? Yes, I do. Um, so tonight is sort of like the charming small town celebration. And so I'm going to read at my local bookstore. Kate, who runs the bookstore, is a gift and an angel. And... Everyone's coming out to this tiny room That's in great. the bookstore, which is usually used for seniors to take their graduation portraits. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Yes, and then I'm having like a barbecue at my house, and I have a kitty swimming pool full of various kinds of rubber duckies. Yes. And one of them is labeled Duck 12. Yes. <laughs> so it's a lot like your I, b- bookshelf from away's launch with I was your lobster, say those lollipops. lobster po- lollipops were a, were a win. <laughs> I mean, I'm all about, like, you know, it's funny, I was, like, joking, I also got a, what do you call it, like, a book cake with a cover on the front, and I was talking to um, Chris and my mutual friend, Olivia, and I was like, I don't know, maybe this is lame, and it's too much like a children's birthday party. <laughs> she was like, a book is a child, and the child is being born, it is correct. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is like a birthday. We, yeah. so, we call them book birthdays here, that's how it feels. You've bir- yeah. you've definitely put something into the world, so. And so happy birthday, family of origin. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. 
You're so here much. and we love you. Yeah, we're so excited to sell this book. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. I miss the bookshelf so much, both in terms of the people who exist there and like the space and feeling of this space. And so I hope you guys have a good summer and you sell everyone the perfect book of their dreams. Thank you. <laughs> Thank will. you, CJ. Good to talk Thanks to you. Thanks so much for talking to us. Bye. Bye. is a production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. It's produced by me, Annie Jones, and Chris Jensen, and edited by Chris Jensen. If you're interested in purchasing any of the books we've talked about on today's episode, you can do so at bookshelfthomasville.com forward slash shop. Thank you, as always, to Forlorn Strangers for the use of our theme music. It's called The Bottom of the Barrel from their album, Forlorn Strangers. Learn more at forlornstrangers.com. If you'd like to support us on front, if you'd like to support from the front porch on Patreon and gain access to exclusive bonus content, you can find us at patreon.com/fromthefrontporch. You can also find us at our website, fromthefrontporchpodcast.com, for web-only content and a full back catalog of our show with detailed show notes and links to further reading. This week in the bookshelf, a funny thing happened. I'm gonna tell this story, and if at the end of it it is not good, you can delete this. Okay. <laughs> So, okay, the only thing I can think of is that last week <clears throat> we had these two big author events with this author who wrote the book Crescendo. Mm -hmm. We posted an interview with him yeah. last week um, when the book came out. <clears throat> and so lots of big book releases on July yeah. 16th. Um, but anyway, posted a picture of me and the author to Instagram. Mm -hmm. And this author looks like, I don't know, like Elijah Wood. but He's handsome. He's handsome. Yeah. But like unmarried person mm -hmm. and I find my husband to be very attractive yeah. but the Jordan's number also very cute thank you the number of DMs I received because I have put myself on the internet as appreciating a blandly handsome man which is now something I deeply regret yeah <laughs> because of the number of DMs I got now to people's credit it was mostly people I knew in real life but it was a couple people I don't know in real life and uh, <laughs> one, but one woman one, one of my dear friends did message me and she was like I hope you invited all of your single friends to this book launch <laughs> uh, and I was like you know what I, I didn't but I did schedule Ashley to work and she hasn't worked in months so so you're welcome looking at you cuz <laughs> you're welcome Ashley <laughs> no that's a very good story <laughs> thank you so much for listening we'll see you next week